Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean the Shoop Cheatham. Um, <laughs> um, today, we're taking a little bit of a different turn. We're going to be doing a refutation this afternoon, a couple of refutations, um, of a gentleman named Warren McGrew, who, is, who runs uh, the Idol Killer. Uh, we will be looking at an article that he wrote on Ephesians 2, refuting the Reformed understanding of Ephesians 2, or at least attempting to re refute it, and um, a part of an interview that he did with Dr. Leighton Flowers uh, in a video called Christ's Nature versus Human Nature on Soteriology 101. Uh, so we're going to be discussing that today. Um, as we go through this, uh, I think it's important to understand um, right off the bat, we're dealing with uh, someone who... Uh, claims to have been a Calvinist um, for, I think it was at least 30 years, is what Warren says on his website, idolkiller.com. Um, and he has been going after different aspects of Reformed theology. Um, he's gained notoriety, uh, I think, primarily through Dr. Leighton Flowers and most recently Dr. James White. Uh, Dr. James White has been, uh, at least a couple times, I think, discussed him on his program, The Dividing Line. Um, so here we are. We're going to discuss some of the items that he has, uh, particularly on man's state before God, uh, his fallen state. What does that look like? Biblically speaking, how does Warren deal with it? Um, and we're going to look at that from a biblical perspective and then move into the incarnation um, as it relates uh, to Christ. So with that, I'm going to put up the article here. So this is from his website, idokiller.com. Uh, it's called Understanding Ephesians 2, and we're not going to go through the entire thing. Uh, I think we're going to hit some of the main points of the article today. Um, but what, uh, what Warren does initially is he tries to lay out what the Reformed or Calvinistic view is of uh, man's state before God. He asserts what the alleged wrong understanding is, and he says this is from a Western tradition of uh, the reading of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So we'll read through these points here to kind of lay the groundwork of where he's coming from. Uh, so he says, if you come to Christ from such a Western tradition, then you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 as this. As a result of Adam's sin, all mankind is born stained by sin and doomed from the womb. Depending on whether you affirm original sin or total depravity, you may elaborate more on this point, but regardless, it is where you begin. Number two. Consequently, you and everyone else are born with a nature deserving wrath. Number three, it is this nature which causes you to live according to the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body. Number four, you are evil, a rebellious child of the devil. Number five, you are dead as a result of Adam's sin and trespasses. And then he goes on to say, it is this presupposition which causes you to read the passage but understand it out of order reading a doctrine into the text and thus misunderstanding uh, and thus misunderstand it in its entirety. So we're going to just uh, show today that that is a false assumption um, of what Ephesians 2 is actually uh, teaching in terms of him saying that our view is wrong. Uh, we're going to demonstrate that uh, the reform position is consistently taught in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere. So the first point that he goes on to discuss, um, what does it mean to be dead? So the, the Reformed understanding of this doctrine of uh, deadness and sin is that man is dead, spiritually speaking, that he is actually spiritually dead, that there is no spiritual life within him. Um, and this comes from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in the first few verses. But Warren here will assert that man really isn't dead in his sins from a... Uh, from a spiritual perspective, that he is only dead in a relational uh, sense, um, which is a problem, because that's not what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll demonstrate that here in a second. But the argument that he lays out with regards to being dead in sin um, is he goes to Luke chapter 15. So he says right off the bat, it is often asserted that when Scripture says we are dead in sin, that this is spiritual death. Oh, that this spiritual death is exactly like being physically dead. During such discussions, it is not unusual to hear a reference being made to our total inability. In the example of Lazarus in the tomb, 
and the internet religious forums are abounding with such memes. However, contextually, it is clear this is not like physical death. So the question is, uh, the question then is, what sort of death is this? What does this mean <clears throat> for understanding of God, man, sin, and righteousness? And then he goes on to quote Luke chapter 15, verse 32, which is uh, the story of the prodigal son. Um, it falls within that story. And he uses the term here as it relates to being dead and alive as talking in a relational sense. So Luke chapter 15, verse 32 says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So he uses this to try and prove that deadness and sin is in relation to God uh, with from a relationship perspective, and that there really isn't spiritual death uh, being discussed here and then he tries to go back to ephesians chapter 2 and read this understanding of deadness into the text and then he'll go to other places like isaiah 55 7 ezekiel 18 um, and even the didache which is an early very early church um, writing so what i want to discuss real quickly is what deadness and sin really means if we go to ephesians chapter 2 <clears throat> Let's look at the verses that he points out. He starts with verses 1 through 3. So, in you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, <clears throat> among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the loss of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just, to the, just as the others. So Paul has already laid out here what it means to be dead in sin, um, at least off the bat. He said, you who were dead in our trespasses and sins, the deadness is in our sins. It is a spiritual deadness. Um, it is a deadness that comes from sin, which has uh, defiled us completely. Um, this does not mean, as Warren has asserted uh, before, and I think that we'll see in the video that we'll be talking about here, that our, uh, this means that our flesh is evil, our flesh has become evil, that we are, um, our physical selves are evil. That's not what total depravity or, as some say, radical corruption means. Um, I mean, spiritually speaking, that we are dead and that sin has affected every part and faculty of our soul and our body. So uh, we have to understand uh, that, dead, that this is what total depravity is from the Reformed and biblical perspective. But if you go down, uh, beginning in verse 4 through 6 of chapter 2, <clears throat> Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting here, Paul, does, Paul compares and ties our resurrection from spiritual deadness to the resurrection that is in Jesus Christ. Now this is very important. This, this is this language that goes back to being in Christ, being united with him, and what does it mean to be united with Jesus Christ? This means that we receive the benefits that are in him. As 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, we, we, he's become for us righteousness, redemption, sanctification. Those benefits that are in him we receive. So we are raised with him. Now, is this is simply a relational death? No, this is, a, this is an actual death that is being talked about here with Christ being risen from an actual death. But we're being raised with Christ. There's a parallel being made directly to Christ's resurrection. This is not simply a relational death and a relational resurrection. That's important to keep in mind. Paul ties our spiritual resurrection to the resurrection that is in Christ Jesus, to Christ himself being raised from the dead, and we've been raised with him. And so Paul ties our spiritual deadness to Christ's resurrection. So this cannot be simply a relational death merely but it also but it must mean that we are actually dead spiritually or this makes no sense now this doesn't mean that there isn't um, some sort of gap between us and god and our relationship isn't severed um, paul will go on to say 
in verse 11 and 12, uh, particularly in verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there is an alienship that is there. There is a gap. There is a, a massive ravine between us and God. Because we are dead in our sins, because of our sin, we are aliens to God. Um, but Paul is talking about an actual deadness in sin as it relates to our spiritual condition. And so to merely uh, utilize Luke 15 as your basis without using the rest of the passage that Paul himself lays out in his argument um, I, is very faulty. We have to utilize what Paul is actually saying here in the rest of the passage. We have to utilize the context and read the entire passage, not just jump to another passage quickly. Let's make sure that the actual argument that Paul is utilizing here is consistent with that form of deadness. And just because the word dead is uh, being used in one place does not necessarily mean that's the same that's being used here in Ephesians 2. Again, we've already demonstrated Paul ties our resurrection from spiritual deadness to that actual resurrection that was in Christ. So this cannot be some uh, relational deadness. This is actual deadness. We've been raised spiritually, just as Christ was raised physically from the dead, and that we are united with him in that way. Now, a major danger that we have here with regards to Warren's assertion about just our death being, or Paul's uh, referring to deadness here as being merely relational, um, he might not come out explicitly at saying this, but if you're saying that we are just simply relationally dead, then that implies that we are actually spiritually alive, right? If we're not really dead, as the orth as Orthodox Christians say we are not, uh, if we're not dead in that way, then we must be spiritually alive, right? If man is only dead in his relationship with God, then we must be alive truly if he is not dead literally spiritually speaking if you're to be consistent and as we've demonstrated this is not paul's argument here in ephesians 2 but what paul does in the new testament is he ties our spiritual condition with how you live the outworkings of your spiritual condition are shown in fruit right those who are dead live in sin those who are alive walk according to the spirit we see this very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but those who are the Spirit uh, walk according to the Spirit, right? And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not His, and therefore you cannot please God. So the outworkings of your actions display who you are. So if you're saying that man is not actually dead spiritually, now you're putting man in the category of, or unbelieving man in the category of believers, you have to in order to be consistent. You have to, but Paul never does that. He always separates them. He always shows them to be um, identified with how they live. And this is why having a consistent hermeneutic is very important. This is why understanding covenant theology is very important. Um, you know, Warren will go on to talk about this passage doesn't talk about Adam. You know, so we can't, you know, Adam's sin and, and uh, Adam holding us guilty for our sin. Um, it, but Romans 5 teaches this. We see this in Romans 5, verses 12 through 19. And, and one thing I find very interesting, in all of my research and preparation for this, um, I did not find one place where Warren actually uh, tries to refute the Reformed position on Romans chapter 5. Nowhere. Uh, and it might be out there. If it is, send it to me. Uh, it shouldn't be this hard to find. <laughs> You know, I watched his series on um, allegedly refuting original sin. Uh, not once did I see Romans 5 being um, the position that we hold to on Romans 5 being refuted. Um, I think that's very significant if you can't find a core passage that is used by the reform to defend original sin and federal headship um, as it relates to um, Adam bringing down the human race. But if you look in Romans 5, verses 12 through 19, it says, therefore, just as through the one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, 
who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So we're seeing here two federal heads, right? Two federal heads. Adam representing mankind. Christ representing those who believe. Adam represents his posterity. In his sin, death came into the world and his... Um, his sin was brought with it. Many were made sinners through the sin of Adam. We are immediately receiving the effects of Adam by being in him. This is very important to remember. This is why you need to have um, a consistent covenant theology as it relates to um, understanding how um, things are imputed to different groups of people. And this goes back to what I said about being in Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, you receive those benefits. Why? Because he's the mediator of the new covenant. And through the federal head of that covenant, the benefits are received of the members of that covenant. So, Warren, it, this is why you have to have a proper understanding of covenant theology, having a consistent hermeneutic that sees God's redemptive plan throughout all of Scripture. This is why these things are very, very important. Now, having a proper covenant theology can help you to avoid um, a lot of these uh, pitfalls and errors. Well, it's very important that we uh, that we understand these things. Um, but with that, I'll turn it over to Sean, where we can go through some of the other sections uh, of the article. Uh, before you depart that section, I do actually have a couple comments. Sure. Um, at the beginning of uh, this section on what does it mean to be dead, he says, however, contextually, it is clear this is not like physical death. Um, so... You'll see throughout this article, he'll make assertions like contextually, it doesn't mean this, or um, exegetically, it doesn't mean this. However, I found there to be very little contextual or ex exegetical uh, analysis. In the section that we're going to cover today, um, there's only one spot that actually is at least an exegetical argument, although ultimately I think it's wrong. The rest of it is just uh, assertions, which is funny considering that he asserted at the beginning of the article that Calvinists come with uh, presuppositions to the text and that's what they see what they see um, because he didn't demonstrate that the text uh, says this. Um, again, he says, however, contextually it is clear that this is not like physical death. Contextually normally means that in the context of the immediate passage. However, as Dan read through this section, you saw he goes to Luke 15, 32 he uh, references Luke 15, 17, 18, and 19, um, Isaiah 55, 7, or Ezekiel 18, um, but does not, again, reference the text of Ephesians 2. And that I, I find that very interesting, and uh, honestly, it was very obnoxious or annoying to read this, to constantly being said, contextually means this, and then not proving it from the context. Um, ultimately, as Dan said, um, the word dead, necros or necros in the, uh, the specific word, um, can refer to a relational deadness. That's absolutely true. But if you're going to say contextually, it means that you need to go to Ephesians two and show why it means that in that context, going to Luke 15, 32 is not sufficient to show that's contextually how it, it's meant to be taken in. Ephesians 2. Um, it's not even the same author. You can't even make the argument, well, you know, Paul wrote it this way here, so therefore it has to mean it there, which is a weak argument even in itself, but it's not even the argument here. Um, so unless he's trying to say contextually as in the whole Bible, because obviously um, scripture interprets scripture, but 
words are used in different ways, not even just by different authors, but by the same author. Just because somebody uses a word doesn't mean that's that definition is the same definition you should take throughout the scriptures. Um, context determines meaning. And uh, I was uh, going through this section, I was annoyed that I, it was constantly being asserted to me that, um, oh, in context, it means this, but never actually proven. All you've proven is that is a potential way to re read it. I would argue that's not the correct way to read it, but all at best you've done is prove that it was potentially the way to read it, not that it should be read that way. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. And it, and there are times where we can go, you know, we should look at other scriptures to interpret a particular scripture, um, but we should look at the immediate context first. And then that should determine the author's meaning, like you said. And then if that is not sufficient or there's nothing in there that would lead us to um, think that it's a different context than what we find elsewhere, then we can go elsewhere and say, well, over here, this is used. And therefore, because it's similar to what we're talking about here, or it's talking about what we're talking about here, we can utilize that to interpret this specific text. That's a, yeah. it's a dangerous thing to jump around like that without actually utilizing what the text gives us already. Yeah, exactly. So just reading his next section, which is letting scriptures speak, uh, rather than then beginning with the assumption that the text is teaching original sin and or total depravity, look what happens when we simply let the text speak for itself. So again, he's saying, this is like, without this presupposition, this is what you're going to come to. You, a believer in Christ, were dead in your own trespasses and sins, not like physical death, but dead relationally, just as the prodigal son was dead to, the fa to his father after his departure into rebellion. You, a believer in Christ, once walked away following the course of this world, following the devil himself into disobedience. You, you, a believer in Christ, once lived like the rest of the world, serving the appetites of the body and developing a nature deserving wrath. And that's that's a key one there that he thinks this is a progressive thing rather than a inherent thing. Um, ultimately, I don't think he's he proves that at all. And honestly, there's a lot of assertions on the way that say, oh yeah, you're developing a nature as opposed to actually proving it from the text. Um, moving on to the next section, the passion of our flesh. This is found in verse three. Uh, th this phrase found in verse three is often assumed to be a reference to an inherited sinful nature. All mankind receives courtesy of Adam. However, if we again consider the matter exegetically, we should see this to be something else together, altogether. In Ephesians 2.3, we read of the desires of the flesh, epithumias tisarkos, that's the Greek. That is to say, the appetites of the body, those things filled of the flesh, philimata tisarkos. This is not a reference or nod to original sin or total depravity, but rather speaking of those who have given themselves over solely to gratifying their God-given appetites. To hunger is not sin, but to be driven by hunger into gluttony is. To experience sexual desire is not sin, but to lust and engage in sex out of marriage is. Here we see the scripture speaking to those who have given themselves over to gratifying appetites. Um, and that just let me reread that last sentence because I don't think he's proven that. Here we see scripture speaking to those who have given themselves over to gratifying such appetites. Where does it say in Ephesians 2, 3 that they've given themselves over? The giving themselves over is not there. It says desires of the flesh and things willed of the flesh, sure. It doesn't say that they've given themselves over to that. That is an assertion. And um, that's ultimately the, the issue I see. There's this constant assertion. Oh, it doesn't mean that. It means this. It's like, okay, well, then prove it. Give me something. Just quoting the Greek words doesn't give me anything. Um, so I was, uh, again, very frustrated going through this. Um, and definitely want to spend a little bit of time on the next section. Um, did you have any comments, Dan, before I go on? Nope. Okay. Ahead. Children of wrath by nature. Hebraistically and metaphorically, one is called a tekna, son, child, inhabitant, of anything they are addicted to or possessed by an affection for. The Greek term fuse, translated as by nature, can refer to the natural order as well as our origin, but in this context, we see that this is a mode of feeling or acting, which by long habit has become our nature. 
This passage is commonly assumed, presupposed, to be a reference to original sin and total depravity. However, contextually, we see this is a nature developed by gratifying the appetites of the body, not an inherited sinful nature, but one nurtured by one engaged in trespasses. The Greek term orgase, translated as wrath, comes from orgao, and denoted uh, an internal motion, especially that of plants and fruits swelling with juice. So here we see that wrath is not the natural state of these sinners, but that by their sin and trespasses, they are swelling up wrath, the fruit of their sin. So I would say at the very least, this last part, um, uh, talking about orgase and orgao, actually approaches actual exegesis. He's saying, hey guys, if you look at the word here, in it, it should convey the idea of this progressive getting, um, progressive um, increasing of wrath. So that's sort of what's driving his interpretation here. Um, ultimately, I don't think that works. Um, going back to uh, the Greek term uh, nature, uh, Fuse, he says that uh, in this context, we see that this is a mode of feeling and acting, which by long habit has become our nature. And um, I wouldn't, I would want him to prove that a little bit more. Um, it's interesting. I clicked the link cause he, he put a link in here to, um, online to, uh, a, um, a, uh, website that has, uh, the definition of Fusis nature and, um, the definition, at least the first one here is, um, properly inner nature, the underlying constitution or makeup of something or of someone or something. Uh, and you'll note there's no idea of progression there. And I will note that in the usage, um, you have nature, inherited nature, origin, or birth, which again, those are um, inherited, or sorry, excuse me, not inherited, inherent nature, origin, or birth. Um, origin and birth obviously would not be the way he would want to take this. And then I have my own Greek lexicon here, the uh, concise Greek English lexicon on the, of the New Testament, and that's by uh, Donker. So I wanted to read the... Uh, the definition provided there. Um, oh, where did you go? Okay, so fusis, fundamental state of being, nature, A, a basic condition or characteristic of human or animal entities as determined by birth and prior to technical or other uh, type of influence or interference, nature. Um, and then... Uh, couple other definitions here of humans entering the world without experiencing the remedy connected with Christ and therefore potentially the subjects of divine wrath in imagery branches are not the product of pruning. Um, and then B the, the second, uh, um, definition is of God's basic character. So obviously we're not talking about that there, but, uh, you'll note that there's no idea here of, um, a changing nature. Um, as he asserted. So I actually would like to know sort of where he got that, but at least in the, um, I didn't go through looking too hard for it, but um, at least in my lexicon, it doesn't have that um, idea. Then going on to um, Orgase, which is wrath. Um, like I said, he does at least have the uh, idea of showing, hey, this comes from the word Orgao. And um, it, has the idea of um, swelling with juice so that uh, wrath is not the natural state, but they're well, they're welling up in wrath with their nature. And um, ultimately I think this is an example of the word root fallacy, just because a word comes from a root doesn't mean that you have to interpret or import all the meaning of that root into the uh, word itself. Obviously, Orgao is a verb, so that um, there, there you can have the idea of that motion, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's uh, the way or case um, should be interpreted. So uh, I just picked a couple passages that use the word wrath, the underlying word or case in it to demonstrate that. Um, so this comes from Matthew 3, 7. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So when he's speaking of this future wrath, when we get to that day, is that going to be a wrath that's increasing? No, it's the outpouring of God's wrath. At that point, 
the wrath is full. It doesn't have, you wouldn't think about it in that way. Um, another uh, example is um, Romans 13, 4, for he is the minister of God for thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So is this saying that um, in this case, it's it's the uh, the government, the government who bears the sword is a revenger to execute this growing wrath, like as they're executing the wrath is growing? Obviously not. It's just a, it's a singular concept of wrath there. There isn't necessarily the idea that it's, it's growing. And then uh, last verse I'll uh, use uh, to defend this. Uh, Revelation 16, 7, or excuse me, 6, 17, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Again, at this point, his wrath is being outpoured. It's not growing in wrath anymore. Now, I will note that in some contexts, um, it might have this idea of ongoing wrath, for example, or increasing wrath. Um, Romans 2, 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent hearts, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here, uh, Paul is saying people are actually treasuring up to themselves wrath. The wrath um, that uh, God has towards them is building. And ultimately, I don't think that's an issue with Calvinism. Um, we obviously believe that, yes, people are sinful, but they're also treasuring up themselves for themselves more and more wrath as um, time progresses, that's there's no issue with Calvinism there. Um, but I'd like to point out that, therefore, even if you were to take that idea, I still don't think he would want that definition because all you, you would be saying is, okay, we were by nature these people that were constantly building up wrath to themselves. Would is that is that somehow not reflective of original sin? We would agree. Calvinists would agree that yes, um, by nature we're the pe we're people that will constantly build up more wrath to ourselves because we're fallen and because we will choose the evil. We are bent away towards God. God will constantly be our, our wrath. Uh, uh, God's wrath will be constantly building towards our actions. So ultimately, I don't think that gets around uh, what he um, what he wanted to get around. Um, so again, there's not the only time he attempts to prove the idea that this is a, a progressive thing, uh, is from this one word or gaze, which doesn't have to mean it, uh, mean that. And, um, everything else about there's this progressive idea is, is asserted nowhere in the context. If you were to read through, um, Ephesians two, uh, would you get the idea that this is progressive then rather than just a, um, a statement of this is what you were, not that you were progressing in it, but this is what you were. Um, I think you wanted to comment on the next section there, Dan. Yeah. And I'll just, uh, kind of following up on what you're saying here. Um, just saying that man is, uh, somehow progressing in his wrath or this nature is developed over time doesn't. Uh, really refute it doesn't refute our position at all going back to the federal headship we have in adam in romans 5 if you establish that already um, that precedes anything we actually do and so we would just say that everything we're doing is an outworking of that sin that uh, comes from adam so it doesn't actually refute our position he would have to actually go back and refute that original sin is false based on the reasons we give it um, particularly in romans 5 um, in order to actually make this argument uh, to have some sort of validity. Yeah, I didn't read from my uh, lexicon for the definition of orge, but um, ultimately this doesn't even have the idea of a, uh, a building up of wrath in this definition. It's just, I, I can I can understand in certain contexts, like we read in uh, Romans 2.5, why you would have that idea. But again, that's actually the context letting you know that you're growing in wrath. Um, it's saying, um, after thy, impen uh, thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures, treasurest up unto thyself wrath. So it's literally telling you, you are building wrath, but it's not in the word itself. Right, right. And in the next section, in terms of the conviction of sin here, 
you know, he says that Ephesians 2 says it is you who commit trespasses. It says Adam is not being addressed in this passage. This is just, this is a word, the word concept fallacy, just because the words talking about Adam, um, you know, not being addressed in this passage, or just because the words are not here addressing Adam does not mean that uh, these things, these concepts are not being talked about. Again, we've already established that in Romans 5. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about us being dead in Adam, carrying the same line of thinking that we see in Romans chapter 5. Um, so this is a very weak argument. Um, we're not saying that, uh, you know, Adam is not being addressed in this passage, not directly, but it's an outworking of Adam's sin and our being uh, tied with him as our federal head. We are dead in Adam, um, and therefore we're dead in sin. So yeah, uh, that, I think it's a very weak. Argument. I wouldn't I wouldn't go to Ephesians two to attempt to prove um, federal headship. I would go directly yeah. to a Romans five. But in light of Romans five, we do have a fuller understanding of what's going on here. Um, all that's being said is prior to conversion, we had a nature. Um, we were by nature children of wrath. Um so that's not getting into the details of how we got there. It's just saying, yeah, you were. And that's, everybody has this nature. Um, we are inherently children of wrath. Yes, yes. All right. Um, so I think we'll go ahead, you know, we're at the 36-minute mark. We'll go ahead and uh, jump over to the video, the second part of our show. So Warren appeared on Soteriology 101. And with uh, Dr. Layton Flowers, uh, who we've had on the show before, um, talking about how, at least in part, they were addressing some things that Dr. White was saying, Dr. James White was saying. Um, but what Warren talks about is how allegedly total depravity is inconsistent with the incarnation, because if we believe that we are sinful by nature, in the Bible says in Hebrews 2 that we that Christ took on uh, was made like us, took on human nature, and was made like us in every way without caveats, then we are being inconsistent with regards to the incarnation because uh, Jesus was not sinful. Um, so we're going to play through this a little bit. I don't know if we'll get through the entire thing uh, because of time, but we'll we'll see how far we get. But uh, this is very important. This goes to a core aspect of Christianity, the person of Christ himself. Um, so this becomes a gospel issue. And so uh, we think this is important to address. So we'll start here and we'll stop. And Sean, feel free to jump in and tell me to stop uh, whenever you okay. want to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, Dr. White recognizes that the problem that total depravity creates with regards to the incarnation is significant enough to where seminary-trained uh, adherents of the Reformed theology would not be able to counter it or at least sufficiently counter it. Why? Is it is it that I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a trained seminary theologian. Uh, you know, sure. people who know what I do for a living, uh, they'll, they'll vouch for that. Is it that I'm so brilliant that I came up with something that would trip them up? No. Um, it's that the incarnation of Christ, Christ who is the truth and focusing on the truth, reveals error. And these seminaries are creating people who are taught that these are the these are the conclusions you have to affirm, but they've never been told what happens if you do. They've never been taught how to do deductive reasoning and consider some of these things that they're being told are foundational, when in fact they're undermining their very their very foundation uh, in faith in Christ. And so, uh, Dr. White, um, I think. I think one of the reasons why he didn't get more in depth in the debate review is I don't think that he fully has an answer yet either. Um, and I don't think he's going to be able to have a sufficient answer. Will he have an answer? Yes. He, I don't think he'll let this go, but I don't believe it will be sufficient. Either Christ assumed human nature like us in every respect, and you're affirming Hebrews too, every respect doesn't have caveats. It doesn't say every respect except his soul, every respect except his mind, every respect except his flesh, every respect. No, he took on human nature. Can you pause it? Said, yep. I'd like to note that um, before we continue, just note that he actually has the sort of right understanding there where he says, 
oh no, Christ is like us. He had a human nature. He had human flesh. He had a human soul. All those categories of things are what um, it means for Christ to need to have been made like us. It is those categories of things. Um, that's important that he recognizes that. And um, you, you, you can continue. That'll be relevant when we get into the meat of it. Yep. He did this to redeem 100% of man. If Jesus took on 90% of your nature, then only 90% of you is redeemed and you still stand 10% corrupt. So if I took you before the court and the court acquitted you of nine charges and found you guilty on one, you are not going out of the courtroom a free man. And if we sit back and we say that Jesus only had 90% of our nature, then we are not redeemed. We're denying our redemption via the incarnation. And so the Reformed have spent their entire history ignoring the redemption that we have in Christ's incarnation and focusing on God pouring his wrath on Jesus on the cross so that they have completely ignored the redemption that we have when he took on human nature. They've All completely right, pause it. Pause it here. Um, I think that's, that's, that's far enough, at least for this section. Uh, do you want to start or should I? No, I can start. Um, so the assumption that Warren is making here is um, that we are being inconsistent, as I've already described. But he's, his understanding of Hebrews 2, I think, says too much. Uh, he's assuming that Hebrews 2 is talking about this some sort of exhaustive list of things, including our what would have to include our sinful nature if the Reformed are to be consistent um, in terms of what Jesus had to be made like us in, in, his, in the Incarnation. Um, and we would actually deny that Jesus was made like us in every single respect without any exception. And I think you would too, but we actually get that from the text. We don't just read Hebrews two, stop there and then say, okay, he's made like us in every respect. And then you turn right around and use the same passage. Um, what's interesting is the writer of Hebrews himself makes the exception that the reformed have, uh, utilized with regards. If you jump over to Hebrews four, so he's in Hebrews two. You go over to Hebrews 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is the exception that is made. Um, and what's very interesting is this, this, this is the same line of thinking that the writer of Hebrews is utilizing in Hebrews 2 because he'll talk about being tempted like we were. Um, uh, let's see, he, number seven, uh, verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So it's the same context, the same line of thinking, but the writer of Hebrews makes that exception. So this can't be an exhaustive list of things that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here with regards to being like us. Um, and he's assuming that if we say that our sinful nature is part of who we are and Jesus was in every respect like we are, then he must have been sinful on our uh, position. Um, and that is, uh, I mean, that's just very obviously faulty. And I'm actually, if you don't mind, Sean, real quick, I'm just going to read a section of our confession. This is the, yeah. the second London Baptist Confession of Papacy 1689, which we uh, substantially subscribe to. Um, paragraph 2 of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time has come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the, one, the only meteor between God and man. And this language is echoing the language that was used at the Council of Chalcedon, which affirmed um, the two natures of Jesus Christ in uh, dis, you know, rejecting the monophysite view that Jesus was only uh, a divine, only had a divine nature. 
what's interesting is the proof texts that our confession uses are, or part some of the proof texts are Hebrews 2, 14, 16, and 17, and Hebrews 4, 15. Um, so we understood, we have understood consistently that the Bible makes the exception that Christ is without sin, and that this is not an exhaustive list of elements that need to be part of um, Christ in order to be uh, in his nature. That's why it uses this term essential human properties, those things that make us human essentially. Um, and I think, Sean, you're probably going to bring this up too, but did Jesus have to take on a female body in order to redeem us? If, if Jesus was made in every way like we were, yet with, without caveats, as Warren says, did Jesus have to have a female anatomy in order to redeem women? No. No, Jesus had to have those essential properties that make up the human nature. Um, and that is very, very important to realize. Um, and this is, you know, going back to our discussion on covenant theology, this is why having a proper understanding of covenant theology is important. Why is the virgin birth important as it relates to the person of Christ? Because if Jesus was born of a man, then he would have inherited the sin nature in Adam. Because in Adam, all die. All Adam's posterity die. This was a miraculous birth that was con Mary was conceived by the Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the of the Virgin Mary, and he did not inherit that sinful nature. Jesus was accepted from that. Jesus did not need to have that because of that particular um, event. So this is why having these other elements, covenant theology, a proper understanding of Adam and the fall, original sin, all come together consistently. Um, and help us to have a proper understanding of who Christ is. Otherwise, you fall into silly teachings like this that take one verse and just throw these things out there without actually um, looking at other passages, actually going to uh, these confessions. And I know Warren is somewhat familiar with this. In, in one of his videos on original sin, he quotes the 1644 and the 1689. Um, so, you know, I, Warren, go read this. Go read chapter 8 on the person of Christ. This is what we believe, and we have consistently... Um, believe this uh, throughout, uh, you know, the Reformation, um, you know, ever since this was written in the 17th uh, century. So th this is the consistent uh, view that we teach from Scripture. Christ was not sinful. That is the exception that is made by the writer of Hebrews. So you're saying too much in your assertion about, about Hebrews 2. And Sean, I'll let you pipe in. Yeah, I do actually. I definitely want to harp on the um, the analogy with uh, women. Um, obviously, this is apparently a, a controversial um, idea uh, in our current day and age, but I will stand firmly on it. Um, women have a nature different than men. Women have a anatomy that is different than men, um, and Jesus did not partake of that nature. Um, he did not have uh, women have a um, there, how do I want to say this? Um, there's a different mentality there than men. Um, Jesus did not partake of that nature and he's obviously still able to redeem, um, all women that are in him. Uh, it's not that he needed to have our exhaustive nature down to the littlest thing in order to save us. He just had to have a human nature. It is not definitional to humanity to have a female nature, even if humans have female natures. Um, it's in my nature to like Hawaiian pizza, which is a fairly controversial um, uh, idea. Most people would disagree with me there. Um, I have no idea while Jesus was on this earth if he would have liked uh, Hawaiian pizza or not. Does that mean that he didn't die for um those people or his, his death was not substitutionary for those people obviously not um i was not born of a virginal conception and jesus was does that mean he wasn't a proper substitute for me obviously not um he just needed a human nature it is not definitional to humanity to have a um a corrupt nature adam was not born with a corrupt nature therefore it is not definitional humanity to have um a corrupt nature and one day i will not have a corrupt nature if i am in christ i am but i will not have a corrupt nature it is not definitional to have a corrupt nature so jesus can stand in my place as a substitute because he is a human being he doesn't have to have all the specifics aspects of my nature 
it is definitional of my nature to like pineapple on pizza. It is not definitional of everybody's um, nature to like pineapple on pizza, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. Christ had a human nature. He's able to substitute for all of us. And that, that is truly uh, what's uh, key there. Yeah, that's exactly right. So having a proper understanding of Hebrews 2 is very important. Um, not just reading Hebrews 2 and then ignoring uh, Hebrews 4, which talks about the same line of thinking and makes the exception. So unless the writer of Hebrews is being inconsistent with himself, um, then we have other epistemological problems. Then we have to understand it to mean the essential human properties. This is not every single aspect of um, our being Jesus had to take on for the reasons we've described. Mm -hmm. um, and I see that Mr. Warren McGrew is here and uh, trying to stir up some uh, some dissension here. Um, I will say this, uh, Warren, I know that, um, you know, you were all bent out of shape about us not having you on. Um, and I'll say this, we can have whoever we want on our show. I don't have to have you on our show. I don't have to have anybody on my show. Um, don't take that to mean that we're afraid of you or being cowards. You can respond to our videos in every, any way that you want. You know, if you want to create an episode to respond, fine. But I do not have to have you on my show. Um, so... I just want to put that out there. Um, fine. If you don't, if this is yeah. your response, then fine. But I, I, I will note that um, we, and it was more than just Dan and I, it was uh, the four of us that run the particular Baptist discussed. And uh, there were differing opinions on whether or not to have you on. Um, and we ultimately ended up with no, and not all of us were in agreement. So it is not like, oh, we were afraid or whatever. Uh, and I won't get into who said what, but some people were okay with you being on some were not it's not a matter of like we're we're afraid of you um and just to say so is we're here put we're putting ourselves out there you know yeah gonna, you're yeah. uh you know, warren and layton's minions are gonna try and eat this up later i'm sure um but yeah right. yeah so to read into our motivations well i know that i've failed and read negative motivations into people doing before uh what people were doing before and probably was wrong um, I would warn against doing that. We were not, we're not, uh, necessarily afraid of having you on. No, no. All right. Um, I think that's all for today. We've hit the gist of what, um, of Warren's argument with regards to the incarnation, um, and reformed theology. We've talked about, uh, Ephesians two. Um, and next week we are going to actually be going through at least, I don't know how much we'll get through it, but we're going to, Warren, we're going to be going through your statement of faith on your site. We're going to pick that apart. Okay. Um, I, I think it's important that we talk about um, where you're coming from, what you believe as you have published. Okay. Um, it, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. That's our plan. Lord willing. Uh, we're going to be walking through that and refuting it. Um, so with that, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope everyone has a great Lord's Day tomorrow. And thank you for joining us on Predictable Baptist. Have a great day. God bless.